Hey everyone, welcome to the Smart Economy Podcast, a production of neonewstoday.com. I'm your host, Dylan Grabowski. In this episode of the Smart Economy Podcast, I sat down and spoke with Al Morris, the CEO and founder of Coin Network. Coin Network is on a mission to produce better decentralized applications and make it easier for developers and community members to participate at every level. The network is designed to abstract incentives from intermediaries by leveraging open source and distributed architecture to build a truly open internet. In this conversation, Al and I talk about empowering users by giving them control over their data, building a decentralized internet, rewarding users for contributing resources, the various iterations of the coin network, interesting use cases, upcoming releases, and so much more. Just a reminder, nothing said on this podcast is a solicitation to buy or sell any tokens, that nothing should be taken as financial advice, and that the host or guests may hold tokens discussed in any given episode. With that said, I really enjoyed chatting with Al, and I hope you enjoy the conversation too. Hey everyone, what's going on? Today, we are joined with Al Morris, the founder and CEO at Coin Network. Coin Network aims to democratize the internet by rewarding users for giving their attention to apps and pages. How are you doing today, Al? Doing great. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, really excited. Uh, but before we jump into anything, can we get an update on the Koi plant status? Oh, the Koi plant is doing great. Uh, his name's Oliver. Uh, we're on day 2030 now, I guess. Yeah, it was 29 yesterday. We took a little leaf off of a pathos plant and put it in soil. And it's been growing like crazy. He's got poor leaves going now, and we're hoping we'll have a you know proper plant growing by uh, midsummer, I think. And how big is are those plants expected to get? Pathos? Oh, um, my last pathos that I had in Chicago was probably about 20 feet long. So it'll grow pretty big. Awesome. Really cool. So before we jump into kind of Koi and what inspired you, I want to start at your genesis. Where did you study at university and what made you want to study mechanical engineering? Uh, so I grew up in rural Canada, uh, not that rural, but a city called Halifax out on the East Coast. And originally I was going to be a pro snowboarder. That was definitely the plan in high school. Uh, and I had a pretty bad wipeout while I was training uh, on the Canada Games team and I uh, had like a bad knee injury. And so I was laid up for a while uh, watching like TV and playing cards with my grandma and watched Iron Man. And I was like, wow, you know, if I can't be a pro snowboarder, that looks like it would be fun. Um, so I got into robotics, actually. Uh, mechanical engineering is kind of one of the disciplines you can come into it from. I uh, spent a lot of time building robots out of different parts, Lego, anything you can imagine. Uh, we used to do these design competitions where you'd go in and they had basically bins of parts and you had a budget that you could buy parts from the shop. And then you'd have to solve some kind of problem, like build a machine that will lift itself out of a small box when it lands on Mars and then start taking soil samples and putting them into the box. I think we built that one out of toothpicks and small motors and a battery in about like three hours, which is pretty wild. I think it had a couple of elastic bands in there to create tension and a little robotic arm that we built. But got out of school doing that and it was uh, it was really fun working in the robotics industry, but there was a lot of like, a lot of what I did was in uh, industrial systems. So I was in factories and automating jobs. Um, we were working with like AI systems that could kind of replicate a human person on an assembly line. And that started to feel kind of soulless after a while. So I started looking for other ways to kind of make a bigger impact. Uh, got interested in the web. I've been writing a lot of software in the robotics world, obviously. And got interested in the web and started looking at that and got into uh, digital marketing for a while. Worked for a pretty large uh, affiliate marketing network called ShareSale. 
And while I was working there, I started feeling like the kind of internet was not really what I thought it was at the beginning. Like we were working on tracking pixels and like you're tracking people's behavior and that kind of thing. And that's like a, it's a pretty creepy world when you get really deep into it. You realize how much data you're giving off as you use the internet. So I got really interested in privacy solutions, found Brave, found the kind of Ethereum ecosystem, which is just emerging at the time. This was like 2016, 2015. And got very, very excited about that. So I got into education. I started working with a YouTube channel called blockchain.wtf, which I think is still there if you want to watch the old videos. And then we eventually ended up uh, turning that into uh, more of a formal nonprofit and started teaching classes in Chicago. So uh, one of the early Ethereum co-founders, Taylor Gehring, took us all in, uh, mentored us, and gave us a building to work out of because he had some commercial real estate he wasn't using. And we got to run courses and teach people in person. We had a space where people could just walk in off the street and learn about Bitcoin and use an ATM. And we taught code boot camps as well. So a lot of what we built at Koi is kind of in response to some of the problems that I saw in terms of actually building the decentralized internet. Um, so we've been trying to make that a lot easier. Awesome. And that group of individuals you just spoke about, was that the Blockchain Institute of Chicago? Yeah, Blockchain Institute of Chicago. Yeah. Cool. Sounds very official when you put it that way. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a really uh, official sounding name. So you were saying before we hopped on the call that you're not in Chicago right now, but I am curious to hear... What was sort of the vibe of blockchain and crypto in Chicago in 2017? And how has that vibe kind of changed or shifted or, or, or grown over the years through today? Oh, wow. Big question. So Chicago, uh, the background of the city is that it's like heavily in the commodities trade. It sits at the head of a river. And so a lot of the commodities that were sold uh, from the US went into boats in Chicago and then went down the St. Lawrence and out into the Atlantic. And so as a result, the commodities exchange there grew up, and that actually ended up leading to a lot of the development of the early, like the very, very early U.S. financial sector before New York was like as big of a picture. So Chicago has a really long history in commodities, which is interesting because early on, most tokens were kind of considered commodities. So like uh, Bitcoin or Ethereum at the beginning were thought of more like raw goods, like corn or soy or something like that. Um, and so the Chicago commodities traders got really into it. And the financial industry there just took off kind of growing around this. And there's a ton of the early Bitcoin exchanges, a lot of the ATM chains and things like that are based there. And so we were all just like going to these meetups every week. And it was like at least one meetup a week. There was usually a Bitcoin meetup and an Ethereum meetup that you go to every week. So the Maxis had their camps. And then there were a few other kind of Web3 meetups and people that were just hacking. And I was probably going to at least one event every night uh, in 2017 trying to keep up with what was going on. And we'd like read white papers together. We'd catch up on like what was going on in the EIPs and just everybody was just trying to share knowledge because there wasn't a place that you could learn it back then. You had to learn it on your own. You go read GitHub commits and try to figure it out. And were you noticing that attendees were kind of caught up in the ICO buzz or were you kind of working alongside fellow builders? Um, so the tricky thing then was that you weren't really investing in ICOs, you were investing in products, right? Um, so some people definitely did get caught up in like a retail trader thing where they were just dumping money into some ICO, hoping it would go up. But the smarter investors wanted to know what the technical analysis looked like to see if it would be feasible. That's where I had a bit of an edge because I'd been doing a lot of different types of technology for a long time. And so I could put together the pieces and read a lot of the white papers. I probably read just about every white paper that came out in 2017, maybe up until 2020, like at least all the big ones. And that was like, that was the beginning of it because you start seeing how people are putting the pieces together. And so it was like, we were all learning from each other. You know, a new ICO would come out that said they were going to do something in a particular way, or there'd be some new proof invented. And when I say invented, like a white paper described a proof format that could exist. And then people started building it. And then you'd see a, like a myriad of uh, spinoffs of the same idea. And that's, that's really how we got to where we are today. You know, like even the concept of proof of stake back then was like kind of it was very taboo. You know, like the Bitcoin audience would immediately poo-poo you if you said proof of stake. And now proof of stake is everything, you know, and so it's, it's changed a lot. 
Yeah, I got into the crypto space in 2017 and I have a folder from back then with dozens and dozens of white papers. So I can definitely relate digging into any and every white paper I could get my hands on for a technology that sounded interesting. When was the first time you heard about Bitcoin or Ethereum? Was it was it the 2016-17 era? Was it when you were in school studying robotics? Can you kind of give a little bit of a timeline of of the first time you came across this technology? Yeah, I mean, Bitcoin, like 2010, 2011, when I was in high school trying to be a pro snowboarder, I remember people talking about Bitcoin and I always thought they were crazy. And then a little while later, I remember when I was in engineering school that there were some people that were pretty into it and they were doing mining and stuff. And they seemed like smart people. So I like understood that it was something interesting, but I wasn't that excited about it yet. It was really the, the idea of a world computer with Ethereum that kind of caught my eye. That's kind of what threw me into the space. I was trying to build a, like a peer review for the internet at the time to try and fight like not just misinformation, like the kind of like political speak that we hear, but more like um, when you have affiliate marketing, it's like a you know a blog or something like that that's more or less trying to get people to click on a link or buy something with a coupon. And those kinds of sites can actually spread a lot of misinformation as well. And so we ended up with this kind of like this world where the internet was how we got all our information, but a lot of it was trying to sell us something. And I was trying to fight that. And then I saw this world computer idea and it made a lot of sense to have an unbiased information system. I think that was the first time the crypto stuff really clicked for me. I'd, I'd been into it for a little while before that. That was like kind of mid, early 2016 when I started actually looking at that side of it. So thank you, Vitalik, I guess, if he's listening to this. That's super cool. Kind of a tangent. Do you know of any pro athletes, uh, maybe in the extreme sports realm? Because I'm really into rock climbing myself. And sometimes I do a little bit of snowboarding in the winter. But here in Colorado, we can the sun is out for 300 days a year and it's not as cold during the winter as some people would think. So you can kind of climb all year round. Are you aware of any kind of like extreme athletes that are propagating Ethereum, Bitcoin, other kind of cryptocurrencies or decentralized networks? I've definitely seen some of them. Uh, I know uh, Moxie Marlin's bike's like an international sailor and he's the guy that like basically set up Signal. He's been a big crypto advocate for a really long time. He had an idea called the decentralized library at one point which I think is kind of where the nexus of these things meet. It's like the individualism and autonomy of the industry. But no, to be honest, actually, most of the people that I know in like snowboarding or who spend a lot of time in mountains, they tend to not really care much about what's happening on the internet. They're also angry about the financial system and the way that the internet's controlling people's lives, but I don't think they care enough to fix it because they're having fun in the mountains. <laughs> yeah, totally. Something that you said kind of really resonates with me. I had a previous career working for multiple governments as an urban planner before I got into the space in 2017. And I noticed how rampant misinformation was. And not only that there was a ton of misinformation, but people were actively pushing it forward. And back in 2017, the big project was NEO, you know, it was going to overtake Ethereum. And so I kind of fell down the rabbit hole and I started covering that project and I've been covering it in an objective, fact-based, non-sensational manner basically since 2018, just to provide content for real information and provide sources for quotes and not just say like X government is partnering with Y project and hoping that the price of the token moons. So that really resonates with me. Something that I also kind of get a sense from you is that there's this larger kind of philosophy that drives you. So why is it important for you, for us, for people that are building in Web3 today to break up centralized data networks and online platforms? Well, I think the analogy of it is to think of data centers more like bookshelves. 
I guess, um, as like a very, very large library, right? So the internet is an enormous library where there's all these different branches that own data centers. And you would think that if you're using facebook.com or one of these services, that the information that you're putting in those systems, be it your family's memoirs or photos or your political views or you know just whatever you happen to be saying, you'd think that that would be stored for you, right? But it's really not. It's, it's stored for the profitability of those enterprises. And if those enterprises ever fail, that information disappears. And it probably disappears quite quickly. Um, there's a significant risk that over the next, you know, 20 to 30 years, and actually, you know what, we've already seen this with small radio broadcasters and small newspapers. They get gobbled up by some conglomerate and someone decides that, you know, the old posts from five years ago or 20 years ago don't really matter that much anymore. Or that, you know, maybe some of the images just don't get transferred over when they do the database migration. And a lot of that stuff can just disappear then. And digital is very different from having an actual physical library because you don't ever have a copy and there's no copy left. Once the thing gets moved, it's not like you have to burn the book. The, the database just gets turned off or the server gets unplugged and then it's gone forever. It requires like significant electrical input to keep these things alive for long term. And that's uh, that can be a big problem. It, it is going to be a big problem. I think it's probably one of the most uh, dangerous things that could happen. We could lose our track of history. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And beyond like losing track of history, what about these centralized databases that own these pieces of content, these libraries? What's the philosophy of earning attention, getting people to read information from this database, from this set of tools and information contained within a library? What's kind of the driving factor for entities and institutions that own this content? How do they go about earning attention? And are they thinking of earning attention in a way that benefits the user? Or is it more for the bottom line for them? Great question. It's going to sound a little bit corny, but attention is the currency of love, right? So if you really are passionate about something or if it engages you deeply or you respect it a lot, you will give it your attention. And that can be a person, it can be a platform, it can be a movement, it could be a revolution. But that's what kind of defines how humans spend their time. We only have so many minutes in a day and the amount of things that we pay attention to is limited. And so what we try to do, like, I think mostly what you're asking is like, why is Koi giving out their free tokens from attention? Like, that sounds silly. That's just a really bad way to distribute tokens. What we wanted to do is to build a, a fully democratic system. So if you have a bunch of people looking at your content and those people have a decent reputation in the network and we, we kind of know, like, they can be pseudonymous as well. They don't have to actually tell us who they are. But if that user is looking at you, then that means that you have some value to them because they're spending time to look at you. And I think this is a really good way of looking at like the economics of content in general, or the economics, especially of like scientific uh, research or things that are maybe like journalistic content. It's really hard to put economic value on those usually. And usually we have like the kind of the tragedy of the comments where we try to support those as a community through like democratic processes and our governments maybe give grants to those kinds of people to kind of try to preserve that stuff. Or we have like the Library of Congress where we store a lot of it. But at the end of the day, there needs to be a, a free market compatible version of it. And that's, that's sort of where we've been trying to work. And before we kind of delve further into what Koi is and, and how you're building this free market for individuals to be rewarded for giving their attention towards w- whatever sort of content they're consuming or reading or listening to or watching, um, I just want to ha- ask you a very high level philosophical question. What's the tipping point? What's the point in which users are going to opt into these decentralized networks versus a Web2 competitor like Facebook? For instance, my mom can just go on Facebook and for her, 
she might not necessarily grok a lot of these philosophical kind of concerns that you're working day in and day out to improve, make better. So what does that look like? How, when will society just opt in to something like a decentralized network like Koi versus just going straight to Facebook or any other kind of like catch-all web to uh, centralized platform? So David Waxman um, is the kind of head and founder of Waxman PR, which is like probably one of the biggest PR agencies in crypto. They handle Filecoin, a lot of other big ICOs. They've managed a lot of the large foundations kind of uh, correspondence for a long time. He has this saying that it has to be better than free. And so what that means is not, you know, not just like, you know, maybe better than free would mean I have to pay you to look at my thing, right? Because I could charge you a lot of money and that would be one thing, or I can make it free and that's easier, or I could pay. Um, But it's not really about just paying people. That was kind of the original version that was happening a lot in 2017. And I don't know if that actually really scales well. It ends up being very inflationary and you don't like you end up getting paid in something that eventually becomes worthless. So what we see at Koi is there's kind of like, and I, I keep saying Koi, but like really that's where a lot of our thought happens. Like we've kind of created this team of people that spend a lot of time thinking about these things. So I'm not trying to shill the product, but mostly like <laughs> what we see though is like these three verticals. One of them is access, which is like number one, it has to be as easy as using the traditional systems, right? Another one is like equity and not not equality right like there's still going to be people who have a larger stake in the system or have contributed more and they're going to get more rewards but you need to give people the ability to earn their stake in the system and to have like that reputation that grows which is kind of the third one it's like the social reputation that you build and i guess like the final one that i think is definitely starting to drive people lately especially with all the twitter file stuff coming out and other things like that is like this feeling of privacy and being able to actually have like not only do i want to keep my messages private, but I also want to be able to communicate with people directly. And I want to make sure that I'm like, I'm able to make sure that my system works the way that I expect it to. So I have private service from the network. And I think that's something that Web3 can enable in a way that no centralized company ever can, because they're always going to act as a middleman. And if you're acting as a middleman, you end up having to disintermediate that attention, that love, right? The connection that you have with the other person that goes through the social network or through the business platform or whatever it is that you're using, there's a deep connection there. And those social connections are what build everything. And when you disintermediate that, you actually create more value from that social connection. So you're putting more on the table. Very interesting. And shout out to Waxman for connecting us. Uh, Without them, we wouldn't have been able to have this awesome conversation. So really appreciative of that. Now, when someone might come across Koi for the first time, they'll see that there's a token and they might just think that Koi is a blockchain or some sort of blockchain-related project. But from the surface level, it seems like there's so much more than just a simple blockchain integration. So maybe from kind of like a high level, what type of network is Koi? Koi is a compute-sharing marketplace and attention org. Um, So what that means is you can use Koi to track attention the same way that Google or Facebook or someone like that does with tracking pixels, but you can do so in an anonymous uh, or at least pseudonymous and fairly private way. And you can, on top of that, then use the reputation that you built from that attention network to enable compute share. Um, And so it used to be possible to be part of SETI at home or folding at home. In fact, you can still join those networks. They're not as popular anymore. But they did large data science research where you use people's home computers to do all, all kinds of things. And so what we're trying to enable is not only the kind of compassion side of it, rewarding attention and giving people that ability to build social trust, but also to then provide an entire suite of tools so that you can build an entirely new internet on top of people's home computers. Um, so what that means is if you and I want to start a social network and we get a bunch of our friends together, why do we need to have a data center? Like we probably don't. We can probably pool the resources necessary and trust each other. 
And so that's where this reputation thing comes in. And it allows you to basically knit together a group of consumer hardware into a hosting network. And by doing that, you also remove the need for this middleman that pays for all of the hosting costs. And then you don't really need ads as much. You don't need to invade people's privacy as much. And it kind of switches the economics upside down. Yeah, that's really interesting. So one of the use cases for Koi could be replacing kind of the current model of Twitter that we see today with a decentralized Twitter. But something that I keep coming back to and I keep thinking about is Twitter is massive. Hundreds of million people of millions of people across the world use Twitter. And there's got to be a lot of data that is stored on those servers. So how large does the coin network need to get when we're replacing servers with personal computers and other types of nodes? How large does the network need to become so that it is as fast and as efficient, well, as fast, as efficient as Twitter used to be before it was taken over by somebody else? Um, how large does coin network need to become so that Twitter can run as efficiently and smoothly as a decentralized application? So this is a question that we get a lot, actually. And it's kind of, I think it's a big misconception. Twitter doesn't need to have a lot of data center space because there's a lot of data. Well, I mean, they do, but mostly they have a lot of data center space because they're running a lot of secondary profit-driven services. So running an ad network on top of a system like that costs something, but you can have that as a separate system that also pays its own bills. What you really look at if you're building a decentralized network is how do you reward the individual for contributing the resources necessary to their own participation? And so if a large publisher like, say, the New York Times wants to run its account, it can host all of its own content and it can pay other people to host its content and it can make sure that that's available. But if you're just an average person and you just want to share your photos or a couple of tweets with a couple of friends, that doesn't need to go as far. Um, and so you can come up with these really interesting systems where like really popular content gets cached a lot across a lot of devices. But if I'm just sending you a photo, it goes from my device to your device. This is what we kind of call edge networking or like more localized systems. Very cool. And is Koi currently right now on, is it like a mainnet standard? Are you still building in, in, in a testnet sort of environment? How far along in production do you feel the network is right now? So we're on version three of the entire system. Uh, we've had two separate architectures that we did before this one, and now we're on the best one that we've built so far. This is the one that's probably going to go to mainnet. We're, we're pretty confident at this point that we've worked out all the kinks and this is highly scalable. What we have as part of that is... We use decentralized storage for the vast majority of the information. Um, so like when you store something onto a blockchain, the reason that it's really expensive to put something on Ethereum is because then all of these Ethereum computers have to store a copy of that. And that brings your unit economics up significantly compared to just you know storing the file on a dozen different computers around the world using IPFS. And you know, if you imagine there's probably thousands of Ethereum nodes, and each one of them has a lot of compute costs, architecture costs, and there's just there's all this hardware that's there. And as soon as you put something on Ethereum, they all have to have a copy of it. Um, sharding is going to fix that a little bit, and E2 will continue to iterate on it. But decentralized storage is already available, so we use that for almost everything. And then what we do on top of that is we have these coin nodes, which are people's home computers, and they run tasks. And so a task coordinates storage basically, and it makes sure that you know you can go fetch information off the internet, put it into decentralized storage. You can accept a file upload from a user and hold that. You can put that on the file coin to get an insurance policy and make sure it's backed up. But the core of the system is these coin nodes that sort of coordinate all of that stuff. And then on top of that, uh, we kind of ran into some problems with transaction throughput by using other people's networks. And so what we did was we built a fork of Solana that just manages these task nodes, which we call the settlement layer. So it basically only acts as a way of these task nodes coordinating payments between each other and keeping each other accountable. And there's a very small amount of data that goes into that to reference the storage layer. Um, so what it does is it opens up the possibilities significantly, and you can have 
you could have terabytes of data going into the storage layer every hour, and then only like one tiny hash that gets logged in K2 to verify it all. And as long as that storage layer is backed up somewhere and it's full of a bunch of signatures that represent who's actually creating the data, all of these task nodes can go compare resources and check each other's work and make sure that everything's being done properly. And if one of them does something wrong, then they get the collateral slash and the network can roll back to the previous state pretty gracefully. There's a lot I want to unpack right there. So I guess we'll just start with task nodes. So to become a task node, do I have to stake a certain amount of koi? And you mentioned slashing as well. So there's an economic incentive to ensure that I'm operating properly so that the network basically so that I can be a, a fair and honest participant in the network. So can you share a little bit more about what it takes to become a task node, what the slashing entails, and anything else surrounding the economic model for a task node to serve as a good actor? Yeah, so this is one of the big benefits, actually. Um, you don't necessarily have to stake tokens to run a task node. So you can start with nothing, and you can still earn tokens. Same way that Bitcoin works. right? Like If you have a node, you can make tokens. The thing that's interesting is each task is separate and has its own incentive model. And some tasks are designed for like big, beefy machines that can do graphics processing. And some tasks can run on a personal computer. Uh, we're even trying to get them to run on phones. Because a lot of the stuff that Google does of like indexing websites or like even bridging blockchains, a lot of that's actually not that data intensive. And you can do part of the job, like going and fetching information on like a mobile phone and then return that information over to someone's home computer that does a bit more and then pass that off to a really beefy computer somewhere that does the last bit. And so that process of kind of breaking down these tasks into all these different incentive models means that somebody can come in with no tokens, start running a task that does something like web scraping or reading from a bridge. Uh, maybe it makes them set up a Twitter API key so that they can get some information from that network and anchor an Oracle. That task might not require anything. Maybe it just has some other prerequisite, like you have to have an Ethereum key that has this many tokens, or you have to have a web API key for Twitter, whatever it is. Then you make a couple tokens, and now you can access higher and higher tiers. Um, and actually, thanks to our recent partnership with IBM, we're soon going to be able to allow people to actually rent a data center node if they want to as well. But it won't be one that's controlled by like Facebook or some company. It's one that's controlled by the consumer community. And then the final thing on that that's really neat is the incentives are not just in Koi tokens. So Koi is actually just for the transaction processing layer. That's what you use for K2. You can make a Koi task that uses Koi tokens as incentives, but you can also, uh, with their next release, I believe, you will be able to actually also include any token that you want. So if you have your own community, you can get them to stake that token or stake an NFT, and then you can reward them in your token. And the only thing that the Koi tokens really use for in that situation is just making sure that the settlement layer can do consensus and that the gas fees are all paid and that kind of thing. But again, those gas fees are very small because they're just taking these hashes from decentralized storage. And are you noticing a growth or an uptick in the different types of users that want to access the Coin Network? So you mentioned that you're partnering with IBM. So presumably you're starting to talk with partners, entities, uh, what have you, that are looking to utilize this network, but also are storing larger amounts of data and have larger data requirements. What are some of the examples of kind of like the growing size of entities that need an IBM level server? So it's less about what the, the end users need. Like we think of that kind of like being an Uber driver. So if you need an XL car, maybe Uber will lease you one. That's kind of how we try to model it. Koi is Uber in this example. You know, we're just kind of getting the tasks out there that people can do and then trying to help them get the hardware they need. The interesting thing though, is as we've brought this open, the last like two months, we finally released all of the tech docs and we've got everything up to speed on the docs portal. You can now basically create anything that you could on the traditional internet using Koi. 
And so we've been taking that around to a lot of decentralized projects that have been trying to scale up on other networks. And they're, they're seeing that the efficiency of using this system is a lot higher. Um, so we've got everything from uh, like Omni bridges that connect multiple blockchains together to search engines, social networks. We've got a podcast network that we're in the process of onboarding. A lot of these different toolings that we've built can be applied to almost any type of web product. And you can take a traditional company that's got their backend written in like JavaScript or uh, TypeScript, and you can port that right over into Koi very quickly. And it's just a matter of adding those incentives on top of it. So it's become a very fast process. So actually, we uh, we just released it about two months ago, and I think we've got 1,300 projects in the pipeline. We're trying to get an accelerator program together for them where we'll give them mentorship, connect them with the right people so they can start to build their business model and then help them actually build all the tech. So we're actually also we're hiring DevRel people as well at the moment so that we can kind of accelerate that process and make it easier for people to use the system. Super cool. It sounds like you're starting to rapidly see uh, demand, which is always refreshing to hear in current kind of like negative macro market environments. But I always think that this is the best time for biddlers to biddle. Something that I keep coming to, but I can't quite answer yes or no, because I myself am not a developer. I just write about the cool work that developers do. But whenever I'm reading through Koi and watching your interviews and just kind of like digging in deeper, for some reason, I keep getting this allusion to Infura. But I also realize that there's, it seems like there's a lot more that Koi is offering than Infura. So why am I thinking this? Are there similarities and differences between what the two uh, services are going to offer? Yeah, so there's some similarities for sure. Uh, what Infura does is pull data from Ethereum nodes and then uh, provide you with kind of RPC endpoints that you can use. So every time that you send a transaction to MetaMask or check your balance, it's going through Infura to grab that information from Ethereum or send a transaction out to Ethereum or to Polygon or any of these other networks. The thing that Infura is doing there is basically what we call an oracle. So they're in the middle and they're checking one thing and giving you some information. In other cases, uh, you might want to get information from the traditional internet, like uh, some pricing data for a DeFi feed, and you can do that with Chainlink. But those are both bespoke networks that do specifically those things. And early on in the system, like I was talking earlier about the 2017 thing, back then it was really hard to build this stuff. And so they built a lot of this stuff as bespoke code that did one thing. Uh, what Koi does is it makes it possible to build most of those types of applications using a standardized format. Um, and so that's what we call gradual consensus. And we've got this whole, it's all on our docs board, obviously, but it's a way of approaching building these kinds of off-chain oracles that makes it very standardized. And it's also all in JavaScript, which makes it a lot more accessible. And you can kind of build your own thing instead of having to go to one of the suppliers and ask them to build it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I understand that gradual consensus is probably a whole talk in and of itself, but can you elaborate on this concept of gradual consensus? How long does the process take and why? Sure. Um, so very quickly, uh, it takes as long as you want it to, <laughs> and it depends on how you want to audit things and what the incentives are. Um, so it's very, very open-ended. The, the slightly longer answer is that the way that we've designed this is to allow the task creator to set up the incentives and audits properly for their use case. And so you basically have a set of different timers that you can set up, and then you have to supply a task function, an audit function, and a distribution function. So the task function runs first. That's what the nodes are running all the time to provide your service. And that has in it almost no real, um, there's no cryptography really. It's, it maybe generates a couple proofs and throws them in IPFS, but it doesn't do a lot with that. And then at the end of a task period, which we call a round, which is set by the task creator again. So your round could be an hour, it could be in a minute, it could be 20 minutes, it can be whatever time you want. That time 
is the period that we're watching. And if you do that properly, then you'll have some proofs after that, and your task node will automatically submit those proofs for review. And the rest of the nodes look at them. And basically what that means is, hey, I've done my job. I'm going to stick my hand in the cookie jar and ask for a cookie. And you have to keep your hand in there. And you're waiting and waiting and seeing if the other nodes are going to call you out on it. And if nobody calls you out on it, nobody says that you did anything wrong, which again, they're doing this all automatically using your audit function. If they don't say you did anything wrong, then you get to take the cookie. And that happens in the distribution function. Um, so the cool thing about this is that you can customize the distributions and you can customize the audits and you can customize the tasks and they all work together very seamlessly. And we realized over time that the incentive models that are available for web hosting are actually pretty, they're pretty constrained. So there's only so many different types of things you can get a computer to do that you can create an incentive and an audit for. Um, and so what we're hoping to do within the next year or so is to be able to provide templates for most of those applications. So that when somebody comes to us and they say, I want to build a web scraper like Google, we can tell them how to do that. Or if they come to us and they say, I want to build a bridge between blockchains, we've got a solution for that. And they're actually quickly coming together with a lot of the people in the ecosystem to make these standards because it also makes the products more trustworthy. And so you can actually kind of work in the open and build open source projects that have all of these attributes of full decentralization without kind of the hurdles of trying to go through uh, somebody who acts like kind of a middleman and uh, solutions architect for you. And we're, we really hope to get to the point where this is like a drag and drop interface. Like I want to make a web scraper that watches this website and sends me an alert and then posts it into my Ethereum contract and mints an NFT. And that should actually be pretty easy to do in a completely automated way without you having to run the server yourself. That's super cool hearing kind of the seeds for this composability that's going to go beyond just kind of blockchain SDKs or, or tools or anything like that, that Koi is really looking towards providing these plug and play solutions for uh, services beyond just blockchain networks, but also the internet in general. Earlier in our conversation, you had mentioned that the network is essentially a fork of Solana. So I'm a little bit curious to hear why you dug into that tech and why you forked that that stack, particularly because it sounds like maybe your awakening was uh, seeing all the different things that Ethereum could do. So why did you look beyond forking Ethereum and why did you look at other networks? So there's a few different things that happened here. The first thing that we noticed is Ethereum is extraordinarily good for assets, but it doesn't have a really strong timestamp process. And so what Solana's created is a way of having, uh, through proof of history, a actual timestamp for every interval in the system. And we found that we can map those pretty well to real world time. So like you can actually create a number of seconds per slot in the Solana architecture. And that allows us to do all of this timing in gradual consensus. Because the thing about gradual consensus is, and the reason that we call it gradual, it is this period where you're doing the work at the first part, getting the work checked, and then you get a reward. And so it's gradual because it takes three periods to do this and you overlap them. So while you're getting checked, you're also doing the work for the next round. And then while you're getting your reward, you're also doing the work for the next two or for two rounds later. Um, and so there's this layering system. And that really depends on having really good timers. The other thing that we really liked about Solana, though, is that you can also burn some block space when you need to. And so we back up our entire system to IPFS and Filecoin. And so that means that at the core, our actual blockchain nodes can be very, very efficient. That being said, we don't use them for smart contracts. And so if you wanted to have a smart contract in the system, you actually still use EVM for most of those kinds of things, for NFTs, for token minting, a lot of that stuff can happen on the EVM world. And really the only reason that you're using this K2 layer that we created the Solana port is to wrap tokens in so that you can use them as incentives and core tasks. So it's very, very bespoke for that type of application. 
And the last part of it is that it's very, very fast for accepting our proofs of real traffic because this massive amount of data that's coming in about the attention economy has to also go into this blockchain and get adjudicated very quickly. And so most of the data lives on IPFS again, but then there's still this point where there's all these nodes pinging data in at the same time. And we didn't really want to get bogged down with the EBM architecture for that. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And so now we're talking about NFTs, we're talking about EBM compatibility. We're also talking about K2, which uses a different architecture. So in order to use the coin network, there needs to be some sort of multi-chain wallet. So you guys created Finney. Is Finney just kind of a catch-all for the current networks that Koi supports? Is there the ability to add support for other networks in the future? Uh, Maybe you could just share a little bit about what Finney is, how its multi-chain approach works with the Koi network, and maybe what uh, the future holds in store for the wallet. Yeah, for sure. So uh, the idea with Finney was that we needed a testing ground for a lot of the product ideas that we had. Like we wanted to make drag and drop NFTs. So we built a wallet that could drag and drop NFTs and make our weave NFTs, uh, or drag and drop a file and make an Arweave NFT. And then we started working with Ethereum to bridge those NFTs over to OpenSea. So we added a functionality in there so you can one-click bridge them into OpenSea. And then as we started doing that kind of stuff, we started working on the Solana fork. And you know, naturally, we then had to have a Solana wallet, so we added that in there. Um, but the real benefit of this is that for a Koi user uh, or a node operator, I guess we should call them, the node operator might need to be holding tokens in a bunch of different chains if they're running running one of these tasks. And they might need a bunch of different wallets to do that with. So with Finney, it gives you a really seamless integration so that you can take those keys that you have in Finney that you've created, funded, given the proper NFT, whatever it is that you need to be part of that task group. And you can port that key right over to your desktop node on your computer. And then now you've got this full suite of tools that's very standardized, and we're not worried about trying to get people to uh, follow a bunch of different tutorials for how to do those things in each different wallet. We've just got it all in one place. Yeah, that's really cool. And you mentioned NFTs. So is that kind of the focus right now for the support that Koi wants to offer? Are, Are NFTs kind of the main area of concern right now? Because from... Basically, from my perspective, when I was digging into to Koi, it seemed like the network is currently oriented toward the content creator space as a decentralized media network. So there has got to be all sorts of different ways in which these uh, media entities can utilize NFTs to either provide access to a website, provide access to a subscription service, to reward users, to create unique ways for users to interact with a media entity. So is that kind of what Koi is like digging into right now is focusing on NFTs or is that a little too myopic? We try to stay away from focusing on like like a business opportunity, so to speak. Like really it's more about empowering developers, empowering the kind of community members that are using the network or using products built on the network, and then making it really, really, really easy for people to think about it from an architecture perspective and then building a business. So if you have your own ad network that you're building, and there's one being built on our platform right now called Vinci's, if you're building something like that, and you wanted to issue your own token when people watch ads, you can use our attention tracking to do that as the backend. And we take care of the attention tracking for you, so you don't have to build any of that tech. And then you can just write a Koi task that kind of handles some of the maintenance work. As an example of kind of how all these pieces can fit together, though, the narcissist flower is kind of a cool thing to bring up. Uh, we did this as like sort of a, it was like partially a promotional thing. It was partially like we wanted to do a kind of a cool event for the community and give them an NFT so they could be part of it. But we ended up doing this thing. It was called the Koi Garden Party. We got uh, one of our investors has a museum in Decentraland. And so we had everybody join us in Decentraland and we gave a big presentation. And what we did was we put this narcissist flower on the screen. It was the first one that we made. I think I hacked this out in like three days. And it was an NFT 
that evolved when it got more attention. <laughs> and so if you opened the page on your computer, the flower would start to open. And so it started out as this bulb and we got this gif and we just ripped it out into like, I think it was like 280 slides and it would progress through the slides depending on how much attention it got. But it's a narcissistic flower, right? It's a narcissist. So the next day, it's got high standards for itself and you have to give it more attention to get it to open. It's kind of like a Tamagotchi. But we put this, we put this thing up on the projector in Decentraland in the, in the metaverse. And we got everybody to go and open it on their computers. And we watched this thing together opening in real time. And then we gave out a bunch of them to the community. And I think a bunch of people figured out how to game it and kind of got a bunch of bots to go and like open their narcissist flower for them every day. But I think one of the high scores on them was like 30,000 views that it got in the same day, which is hilarious because that definitely didn't happen. But <laughs> then we started looking at things like the better reputation tracking with our DID so that we can prevent people from spamming the attention tracking. But it, it's these kinds of things that like, you know, we really did that as an artistic thing, but at its core, it represents how you can get these networks to react in real time to people using them. And so you could use this to prioritize content in the social media feed or to kind of give you a better access into financial markets by kind of actually watching what people are looking at. Or you could even create like a trading bot that looks at what people are looking at and then is able to start to kind of create indexes based on what's popular. And so there's a lot of different applications for tracking attention and then integrating it with compute basically. Yeah, that's super interesting. The narcissist flower sounds awesome and it's a really funny story. My ears perked a little bit when you brought up DID. So how do you incorporate identity into the coin network? And also, how do you kind of battle what I view as this internal struggle with maintaining privacy, especially on a blockchain network, but also using my wallet as a form of identity? And what are the ways in which you guys are balancing authenticating and verification with providing privacy for your users? Yeah, so a DID for those uh, that may not be up to speed, who might be listening, is a personal wallet that holds a bunch of different credentials. Um, and you can think of this kind of like having your passport and your driver's license and your health card and a bunch of other things all in one little thing that you just tap when you go places. The difference with DIDs versus having that in a traditional centralized system, though, is that you can incorporate things like ZK proofs. And so if I have a DID that has a lot of reputation and has a lot of like weight in the system, I can then delegate that to a new one that I create for when I'm doing something that I don't want everybody to see. And that's a, that has some pretty significant advantages because it means that not only do you have your reputation on chain and that you can build it up as you move around, but that you can build kind of like offshoots of that reputation and no one has to know where they come from because it's on the blockchain. And it's that kind of conservation of mass thing that happens with Bitcoin where we know how many Bitcoin there are because we know that we can't delete or create new Bitcoin on the fly, right? So in the same way, reputation can be treated that way as well. So it can be treated like a like a commoditized resource that you can trade between your wallets. And as long as you have control of them, then you're all good. So to answer your question, like how does this actually work with Coin and why is it useful? I mentioned the kind of attention tracking thing. Um, so one of the first things that we started looking at was how do we make the attention tracking thing civil resistant, right? Because otherwise somebody could just go spin up a bunch of headless browsers and just ping the thing over and over and over again. And then now it looks like they have the most popular thing in the network and they're getting all the free tokens. And that's just bad because now we're not getting more node operators. We're not building up a community. The right projects aren't getting funded from the tokens. That, that would be bad. So the best thing you can do reputation in that space is just to kind of weight the attention. You can weight it based on kind of like the global standard within Koi as a network. And then when somebody else builds their own attention token, they can add their own weighting so their community can get weighted differently. Or if they have an NFT or maybe they have like levels in their community, those levels can actually be reflected in how they weight attention and how they distribute their token to their community. The other side of it, which is the really nerdy stuff that I get into, is in replications. Um, and so when you have a compute process in our compute marketplace, there's this traditional problem of like, how many computers does it take to screw in a light bulb? 
And so you think it would just be one, right? Like it's like, okay, well, we told the computer to do it. Now it's going to get done. But it's actually not that. It, you actually do have to get another computer to occasionally check that it did it properly because otherwise now the system could be taken over by somebody who's only staking a little bit of collateral. And so the lower your reputation is, the more often someone needs to check your work. And that actually creates a lot of waste. So if you imagine we have a million computers, if half the computers spend all their time checking the other computer's work, then you actually only have 500,000 computers. You don't have a million. And that's a problem, right? And so the higher that replication factor is, which in uh, a lot of computing scenarios, it's like three or four, that actually is very expensive. And it, it wastes a lot of power. And it makes decentralized systems more expensive to run than centralized systems. But if you have a really strong reputation heuristic and you know that someone's a good actor, kind of like, again, getting into an Uber, if you know that your Uber driver is safe, then you're not worried about it. And you can kind of trust that person to sort of run autonomously because they're probably not messing with the code. And that might be that might seem like a big assumption, but you also have to remember a lot of these are like community members who are running a home computer, and like realistically, they might not even know how to write code, so it's very unlikely they're going to hack the system. And if they do, they will still get caught eventually, and they'll lose a much larger proportion of their stake because their reputation was higher at the beginning. And so there's some really neat stuff that you can do there. For contrast, too, like there's some um, zero knowledge proofing algorithms coming out that are kind of supposed to be somewhat efficient for verifying that compute occurred. And in those cases, a lot of the time, your replication factor is like four to eight. And so you're doing a compute proof at the end of each line of code in order to verify that the thing ran properly. But you're actually wasting like seven out of eight compute cycles because you're not actually doing the work with those compute cycles. You're doing all these proofing. Um, and so if you get reputation online for the compute economy, it actually makes things a lot more efficient. Mm -hmm. And when we're talking about reputation, you did mention that there could be other projects that create their own tokens. So it's not just Koi that is automatically distributed when it comes to rewarding attention. So maybe this is uh, the inherent model or maybe it's not. I just want to learn a little bit more about when Koi tokens and other tokens within the Koi ecosystem are distributed to individuals or entities for their attention. Are these tokens automatically staked on behalf of the users when they're distributed? Oh, no, not at all. Actually, it's completely the opposite. The tokens usually get given out for free. Uh, in Koi's case, there's um, a registration step that has to occur. So you can either register your content upfront, which is a very, very tiny fee in Koi tokens, or you can register it later, which costs you kind of a scaling fee depending on how many tokens you've earned before you register it. But then once something is registered, it stays that way forever. So if you're trying to archive like the Library of Congress, again, you can put all of that stuff onto decentralized storage, use the Koi tokens to top up the wallet. And if it's registered, it'll keep generating revenue as long as people are looking at it. So like the Mona Lisa could literally last forever in a digital format. And you could have um, sort of an incentive pool, even potentially invested in DeFi to make sure that that actually stays stable over time. That's super cool. Yeah, it's like uh, trust funds for files kind of thing. <laughs> I'm trying to think of a clever way to weave this in, but I just kind of was reminded of the proof of real traffic model when you were talking about the Mona Lisa example. So how do you utilize proof of real traffic to verify that it is actual individuals that are viewing the Mona Lisa and not just some bot that was created like the narcissist flower you were talking about? Of course, yes. So that's where the reputation thing comes in. And so your, your signature from your wallet, right? In a tr traditional cryptographic world, that's how you send a transaction. That's how you authorize like a new token when you're using Uniswap. Those proofs of real traffic are actually signatures wrapped with a small proof of work. And so if you have a low reputation, you have to do more proof of work, which you won't notice as you're browsing. It just happens in the background on your computer. But if you try to do it with you know a million computers, it would immediately get very expensive. And so if you have a higher reputation, we don't make you do that proof of work and you can just give us your signatures. Cool. Kind of just want to talk a little bit about the the network and activity and users before we let you go. 
you guys launched in 2020. So what has the growth for the network looked like since then? I mentioned earlier that I personally think that macro bear markets are good for building. So are you noticing that you're onboarding kind of builders and developers, or are you also onboarding retail users? And what has growth kind of looked like since your launch? Yeah, I mean, since the bear market, um, everyone's answering their phones a lot more because we're not all like conferences having parties. <laughs> so that's been really good, actually. Our developer uptick's been significant. I think also the new version that we released recently has helped a lot with that. We went through a few different phases, right? So we started out building a completely independent network on day one, uh, which was initially just designed to do web scraping and sort of archive the web. And the idea was that you would pay Coinodes to go and archive pages, and then the pages they archive, they would get a split of the attention rewards. Um, and that was a very basic prototype. And then we went to Arweave and we found a lot of love in that community because uh, a lot of those people were kind of thinking about the same problems and trying to build this kind of perpetual endowment for the internet that we wanted to create. And we saw a lot of adoption there, but then we saw some scaling issues and we also saw some issues with like some of the content didn't need to be permanent because you know a lot of web data doesn't need to be permanent. So we re-architected almost entirely over the last year and moved towards using K2 as our settlement layer, which was completely built by us. Uh, I mean, we forked Solana, but we did a lot of work on it. That took us about like eight months to build, and then it's been online now for about six months. So we've started opening up to developers. And then we've also uh, migrated to using IPFS for a lot of the short-term storage needs and now Filecoin for backups because we find better replication factors there. And so this entire re-architecture, we've actually had people coming in at every step of the way. So a lot of our projects that were originally with us uh, in the Arweave era are actually still working with us. And we actually have customers from way, way back when we were just a web scraping company that are really excited to use the Node network now that it's online. And so now we've kind of brought a lot of these different pieces together. And I think this is probably this is probably the year when it all starts to grow really fast. We we probably haven't been spending any we haven't been spending any time, I should say, actually on sales or uh, developer relations throughout this entire process. And so as soon as we brought it out, like about two months ago, we started reaching out to everybody and very quickly got a lot of people on board. That's awesome. And where are we going to find these users on the Koi leaderboard? What's that going to look like? Yeah, so there's Koi.rocks, Rocks, uh, which currently only shows the Arweave NFTs. We're actually remodeling that right now to support all of the content from across the network. So that includes websites, IPFS content, NFTs on Ethereum, NFTs on Polygon, NFTs on Solana. Um, we're going to put that all together into the leaderboard to show exactly how much attention everybody's getting. So that should be coming out, I think, probably later this month or around East Denver. And then the next layer beyond that is we're also having um, some discussions internally about how we can grow the ecosystem further to kind of create a discovery portal authenticate like a, a GitHub ID, a Discord, a Twitter, uh, and you get free tokens for all the stuff that you add to your DID. The next step for that is we want to build a discovery portal so people can try out all kinds of different products that are being built on Koi. Um, so one example would be like Piranha. So Piranha is uh, P-E-E-R-A-N-H-A. And they have built uh, basically a decentralized stack overflow that provides bespoke communities for different crypto projects. And so Piranha is now adding attention tracking to all of their posts using Koi. Uh, so you'll be able to earn tokens for answering developers' questions. And then the next layer beyond that is you'll also be able to soon run a node and host Pirata. And so we're trying to provide a portal where people can actually hit those kinds of initiatives and give them their support and then also kind of get a piece for helping out early on. Because it used to be that you could run uh, you know, a home computer with a GPU and mine Ethereum. You can't really do that anymore. You know, it's it's not that simple. And you need a lot of tokens to get into it. And it's like very expensive. So we wanted to provide that basic entry point and then hopefully get a ton of people to try as many of these products as possible. Because I think that community that gets in there early and tries all these things is going to be probably the core of the network going forward. Absolutely. And for onboarding these new developers, what's that process look like? What's the available tooling and documentation looking like? Oh, it's really good now, actually. We spent, uh, we've rewritten it five times, I think, with three versions of the network. So it's been a bit of a mess for a while. 
the latest version, I think, is pretty navigable. We've got it set up so that you can go and deploy a Koi task, uh, a sample task onto the network in about five minutes. And then you're up and running with a custom microservice and you can try things out. Those support updates too. So if you wanted to try out deploying a sample product, you can then take the sample task, tweak it a little bit and redeploy it. And you can keep just using the same bounty pool. So that's where we're trying to give out some tokens from the faucet to get people started. If people have more needs beyond that and they want to try and use the network for some crazy idea, like let's scrape the whole internet, we'll give you a bunch of Koi tokens as a grant and you can try actually deploying a task in the network. And that ends up going out to the community members that follow you. So if somebody hears about your task and joins in, they can get a piece of that grant from you because you're paying them for the compute. So there's a lot of very exciting stuff on that front. And then I guess the last really exciting thing is the founder support program. This is sort of something I've really wanted to do for a long time. I mentioned that I'd been doing a lot of teaching before and ran a lot of code boot camps. So the founder support program is where I get to go do that again. And so we've got the first cohort going through right now with about 10 projects in it that are doing everything from bridging to web scraping to search to social, like I said, tons of stuff. Those are probably our top 10 that we found in the last year. And then the next cohort is going to be an open application process from anybody who wants to join. Um, so those applications are open right now, actually, on uh, network slash founders. And you can submit a little Google form there, or I think it's a HubSpot form, and we'll get you into the program, uh, start kind of helping you analyze how you want to build this decentralized product that you're thinking about, and then give you all of the tokens that you need to run that on the network for the first year or so. Cool. The grants program sounds awesome. Kind of wrapping up, what are the next steps for Koi that you're really excited about? Is a CDN forthcoming? There's definitely some CDNs coming. Uh, we just built out the routing framework, which I'm really excited about. So that kind of acts like a DNS layer. And the next thing we'd like to do is get a cache on top of that. We know in a couple of projects that already run caches as well, like there's Saturn on the uh, Filecoin network and there's uh, Mison that provides, uh, I think, both Filecoin and Arweave caching. But the idea here is that you can get the entire web stack completely decentralized and mostly running on people's home computers, which uh, if we can achieve that in the next year, it's going to be a pretty spectacular decade. Awesome, Al. It was uh, super great to chat with you. Really, really fun to hear your kind of philosophy in decentralized networks and how you're, you and your team are really working to improve the internet and to give power to the users and to allow them to own their data and receive rewards for ways in which they choose to distribute their attention to projects. So if people want to keep up to date with you or with your project, what's the best way? Uh, well, if you want to follow Oliver, the Koi plant, you should probably follow me on Twitter. That's uh, Al underscore Koi. Koi Network is also on Twitter as Koi Network. And I think probably the best place to get developer updates and things like that is going to be in our Discord, discord.gg slash Koi. And we usually have uh, some incentives and kind of little bounty programs for ambassadors as well. So even if you're not willing to get your hands in the code, you can jump in there and maybe get some free NFTs or help us debug things or try out new products. Awesome. I'm looking forward to following Koi's growth as well as Oliver's growth to 20 feet and beyond. So thank you so much for coming to join the Smart Economy podcast today, Al. Uh, I know you're super busy these days, so I really appreciate your time. And if I had some reward tokens to offer you for your attention, I would totally give them to you right now. We'll have to get you set up for that next time. (laughs) Cheers. Well, hopefully we can run into each other at ETH Denver. And uh, thanks a lot for coming on, Al. Can't wait. Thanks so much. Well, what did you think of that conversation? I thought it was great to hear about Al's dedication to building an internet that is free of predatory profile tracking and the whatever it takes to get clicks mentality, but chooses to instead reward users for giving their attention or what Al calls the currency of love. It was also really cool to hear about the narcissist flower at the Koi Digital Garden Party 
which grew to demand more views before it would open up next, and how bots were deployed to dupe the code. And it was just really interesting to hear how Coin Network will leverage code like ZK Proofs to commoditize reputation, which can be traded between wallets and help increase user privacy. On that note, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Smart Economy podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support the show, please keep NEO News Today in mind when voting for your NEO Council representative as part of NEO's governance process. We appreciate you and look forward to catching you next time.